Have you ever noticed that when you aren't really doing anything specific, when you let your mind wander, you often start thinking about like yourself and your past and other people, or maybe even your future? That is largely your brain's default mode network in action. And then when your attention gets pulled back to whatever task you were working on that you got distracted from, that's a whole nother set of networks that comes online. Now, in this episode, we are going to talk about what these networks do, how they work, some of the, the large scale, big networks in the brain, especially that default mode, and why they're so important for optimizing and like balancing cognition. Welcome to The Social Brain. I'm Andrew. And I'm Taylor. And this is a show where we dive into how the brain works. If you've ever wondered what's going on inside your mind, even the things that you're not even aware of, then this is the place where we can unpack that and really explore it. To begin, um, we want to talk about why it's important to think about the brain in terms of networks. Um, so Taylor, do you want to kick us off there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is this is something that's been a long time coming. We did an episode on the default mode network a long time ago. It's been over a year. My my audio was crackling the entire time we did it. We've got a lot of requests to, to kind of to come back into this. And we've got a lot of questions too around uh, experiences that, that people have had. We've had a lot of a lot of comments about people that that really kind of resonated with the ideas that we were we were kind of putting out about the default mode and, and about how it's connected to things like rumination and these kind of focusing on these these negative aspects just over and over and, and these stories that our brain is telling us. Uh, and a lot of the questions that we've gotten are really about how to how to kind of break that cycle and how to, how to come out of it, uh, how to turn the default mode down. Uh, we do want to highlight, like we did in our last episode, that this is not about like default mode being bad. Uh, that the default mode is is really what allows us to to be incredibly creative, to be this like future oriented species. Like it's it really is what kind of makes us who we are as humans. Uh, but it's this kind of double edged sword. And one of the things that Andrew was just hinting at is that we really want to talk about the importance of thinking in networks. Because when we're talking about the default mode network, when we're talking about the other networks that come online, when the default mode network is not online, uh, we're talking about lots of regions all cooperating together with one another. And throughout the show, we've talked a lot about individual regions of the brain, about the amygdala being really important for like threat processing, uh, for the, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex being really important for thinking about yourself and all of these things. But the, the reality of the situation is that all of these regions in our brains all have inputs and they all have outputs and they are constantly in this intricate dance communicating with all of these other regions around the brain and really what we want to kind of encapsulate through this is that there's this really interesting flow of information in the brain and that it kind of culminates in these kind of high order networks that we're going to talk about that are used for different types of cognition yeah yeah i think that that key like a key phrase to keep in mind is no brain region acts alone. Like, I don't, I think that's a, a fundamental truth about the brain because the brain is a system, right? It's a complex network system. Um, it'd be kind of like thinking about your body and imagining that like your liver is just 
doing everything like it's it's doing what it does in isolation from the rest of the circulatory system and everything else that's going on in your body um you can't in reality you can't separate the the functions of what's actually happening in the brain uh into these individual regions although they do have their important contributions to make but that's just kind of backing up what taylor was saying the the activity of these regions together their connectivity things we're going to talk about today culminate in uh this identifiable network activity that um yeah yeah so so there are many different yeah exactly dynamic because like interactions Sorry, my bad. I I was I was just kind of going to kind of piggyback off that because I the the thing that I think is really interesting to to kind of put together with what you just said was that we did this this whole episode on like consciousness uh, and about kind of the information that's available in consciousness at any given time uh, and when you really look there's these fascinating videos that you can watch that that are basically just like a video of the brain at rest and just watching it fluctuate, watching like these regions come online and then then go down and then the other regions coming online. And something that I've thought a lot about when we think about like our conscious experience, when we think about awareness is that whatever brain state is active at that time is informing what information is available to our awareness, right? Because if this network, if this set of regions processes this kind of information and it's on, that's what we're going to be thinking about. That's what we're going to be engaged in. But if that is turned down and this other network of regions is on, that's going to completely flavor our experience in a different way. Our consciousness, our awareness is going to be focused on something completely different. That's such a good point. And like maybe a a really tangible example of that that people can wrap their minds around is like, we have networks for our different sensory modalities, right? Like for vision and hearing and uh, tactile um, sensation, somatosensory networks. Um, and when, so when your visual, ne- visual uh, networks are active, you're gonna be, it's gonna be vision that's happening, right? You're gonna be seeing things. Although, yeah, there's some nuance to, to all this because of course, these things are happening at the same time. You can be hearing and seeing, you know, for example, a YouTube video while you're also feeling uh, the chair that you're sitting in or all these different things. So, uh, but but just like Taylor's saying, when one's activity goes up and another goes down, that's going to probably be more uh, obvious in your your conscious experience. And I think that you just hit on something that's 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 really key to all of this in that a lot of the networks that we're going to focus on today are considered high order networks. And the ones that, that Andrew just spoke about, we, we have a network that's responsible for, for understanding the visual input that's coming in, for making sense of the lines and edges out in the world and building that into perceptions that we can use in these models that we work with. Uh, we have the same one for, for hearing. We have a language network that allows us to, to bring in words, put them together into symbols that, that mean things, right? But there's this whole other part of our brain that's considered association cortex. And what what Andrew was just hinting at, the fact that we can do these things at the same time, right? We can hear stuff, we can see stuff at the same time. Like if you're watching this on YouTube, that's what's happening, right? Uh, that's because there are, there are 
other higher order areas of the brain that are putting different sensory systems together that are associating these different sensory streams together. And so what a lot of people talk about when they talk about these networks is that these sensory networks are, are considered kind of low order. They're what are kind of creating the, the foundation, the bricks that these higher order networks are then using to build the wall, to, to put stuff together. That, yeah, that is so cool. It's such a good thing to remember too. And it just made me think for a moment about the, uh, the kind of split brain experiments and uh, you know, cause you were, you were saying that putting there's networks responsible for putting kind of our experience, our sensory experience together. And in one sense, you know, each half of the brain is kind of its own network. Each hemisphere of the brain is its own uh, semi-autonomous network. And there are these experiments when people have their corpus callosum cut, which is the, fibers that connect one side of the brain to the other. And uh, interestingly, what happens is you can selectively kind of talk to one side of the brain or the other if you do these really clever experiments. Um, and what they find is you can get different answers from each side of the brain. So that only happens, right, when these two massive networks are disconnected from each other and unable to integrate that information into like a coherent response. And uh, so anyway, that's like maybe the biggest scale, uh, <laughs> two biggest networks in the brain. I don't even know if that's that's accurate to say that. But anyway, um, that's kind of off topic. We got to get back to these association networks that you were talking about. No, I, I think that that's a really cool kind of way to, to ground some of this, right? Because all, something that I love thinking about is the flow of information in the brain. Uh, and it, this is this is really dynamic. It's, it gets really complex, but uh, there is this kind of this elegant kind of highway that information goes through as as it gets processed from these really just kind of fundamental sensory things that are happening out in the world. These lines, these edges, these kind of sound waves that are actually just pressure in the air, right? Uh, that then are being kind of built upon that we have, they're going through this processing step of saying like, okay, let's take the visual system, for example. You have all of these lines and edges that then get passed to this next set of regions that say, okay, there's a bunch of lines all together. Maybe that's an edge. And then that's passed to another region that's like, oh, that edge is connected to another edge. That must be a corner. And that's passed to another region. And now we have a leg. And, and then finally, like your vision happens way back here, but where you actually recognize objects is way up here in your temporal lobe. So like by the time you know that what you're looking at is, is a table, that's a whole building process that's happened of you turning those lines, those edges, those colors, whether there's movement or not, whether it's alive or not, into an actual perception that you can use in your mind. And they use this phrase in kind of the perceptual neuroscience or whatever of being view invariant, which basically means that like once you have an idea of what you're looking at, you can now rotate it in your mind, right? It doesn't matter what angle you're looking at, if there's part of it that's covered or not, you now have a model in your brain that is that thing. And that model in your brain then can be used by these high order kind of association courtesy networks to then create these really elaborate narratives about who we are, about what we're doing, about our goals, about the task set that we're working with, right? But that's all built from these lower order kind of uh, sensory networks. 
Yeah, that is so cool. And we might get into how these these association or these higher order networks are also related to like our motor uh, networks, our, our networks responsible for our motor movements. Um, before we, maybe before we get there, that kind of might take us off track. Let's, we talked in the beginning about the default mode network, right? So let, maybe we should dive into that. What What is the default mode? And maybe let's just start at the beginning. How is it discovered? I think this is super interesting for understanding uh, what it is and why it got the name that it has. Yeah, there's a there's a couple different ways that it's been highlighted, uh, and we talked we talked a bit about the the first one in our last episode, and I'll kind of recap it here for new listeners. Uh, when we started doing MRI research, we were putting people in scanners and having them do very specific cognitive tasks. Like you need to remember this thing. You need to pay attention to this thing. It required this really focused external attention on the world, right? And the way that these experiments were set up was I'm going to have you do something and then I'm going to have you rest and then I'm going to have you do something and then I'm going to have you rest. And the, the kind of idea at the time was that just like other systems in the body, there tends to be this like this baseline activity. Right. And so what we were doing was we were comparing what's happening when they're doing something compared to when they're not doing anything, when the brain should be kind of at its baseline. And it, it gave us a lot of really cool stuff. We learned that the hippocampus is, is really involved in memory. We learned that the amygdala is really involved in threat. That's where we got these like regions from that we talk about. Right. But what was really cool was that hidden inside all of these experiments that nobody was really looking at was that when you flipped the script, and you said, not what's more active when people are engaged in the task, what's more active when people are resting? This whole network came online. And a lot of people thought that it was like a confound, like, what is this? This, this like doesn't make sense. Uh, and it's, it's really cool because now I think there's been, since that original file, uh, finding by, by Rakel and his colleagues, uh, there's been over like 3,000 uh, articles written about the default mode network. Uh, and, and they thought at first they called it the default mode because they thought that that's what it was doing when we weren't doing anything else. And there's a lot more nuance to what it does now. Yeah. And it's, it's because when people were laying in the scanner, not doing anything right between those tasks that you're talking about, this is the network that tends to come online. And, uh, so yeah, that, that default mode name, right. It kind of makes sense when you think of it from that angle, but it does a lot. It's. Uh, it's funny because like, sometimes I think this discovery is characterized as like, oh, we didn't know that the brain was doing anything <laughs> when you weren't involved in a task. And it's like, of course, nobody right. really thought that because it was like, a, we're, well, yeah, you're thinking, you know, you're daydreaming, whatever it may be. You're just mm -hmm. not actively involved in solving some kind of task, <laughs> some kind of problem. The brain never shuts off. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's always doing something. And, and like you just said, like, it's, it's really interesting to like put yourself back into the perspective of these like early neuroscientists and like this assumption that the brain was going to be like at rest when like, if you just take five minutes to introspect into like, think about your own experience, like when you're not doing something, you're thinking about all kinds of stuff. 
right? Uh, and it's usually stuff that's related to to who you are, to your goals, to something that went wrong, right? Did I uh, did I remember to to turn off the stove before I left? Does does my partner still upset with me, right? These are like these thoughts that are just kind of rumbling around in our head, uh, to the point where we also get to like rumination of like, am I good enough? Uh, am I going to fail again? Like, right? All of these things that that clutter our mind tend to be involved with this this default mode network activity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's what, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of, when you, when you find yourself distract, like I said at the beginning, when you find yourself kind of daydreaming, wandering off mentally into uh, away from something that you're doing and just thinking about, Oh, what, what was that thing I said earlier today? And was that uh, like, what, how does that, and then just going on these tangents of, Oh, what am I going to do tomorrow? What's going to happen this evening? That's, largely a function of the default mode network. So the, there's been a lot more discoveries around what, what it's involved in. And one of the main things that we've, that scientists have found it's involved in is self-reflection, right? Like I was just mentioning, you think about what you're doing this morning, what did you eat for breakfast or what are you going to do this afternoon? These self-reflective sort of uh, internally directed cognition uh, in the sense of thinking about oneself, thinking about kind of your past or your future, daydreaming even. These are the sorts of things that the default mode network is doing. This is my cup of tea. This is what I do. This is what I study. Uh, the self. Uh, it's really cool. There's like, there's a region right here in your middle, middle of your frontal lobe, uh, ventral medial prefrontal cortex that lights up really, really reliably whenever you're thinking about yourself. Whenever you're thinking about things that you own, about who you are, about things that describe you, about whether I'm like motivated, whether I'm lazy, uh, if I'm thinking about people that are close to me, uh, anything that's kind of related to my self-concept lights this region up. And when I say really reliably, I mean, you could put someone in the scanner, one person in the scanner for less than five minutes and have them think about themselves and you will get this brain region to light up every single time. That is incredibly robust compared to other findings in the MRI literature, right? And the, the kind of key that I'm getting to is like that part of the brain is a key node in this network, in this network that's involved in kind of mind wandering. And, and what I think is, is really going on is that we have, I think, some, some sort of self schema, some sort of concept that is maybe reflected in this region that's keeping track of, of who we are, about our goals, about what we're trying to accomplish, about whether we belong to the groups that we belong in, whether people are recognizing us or appreciate us, right? Think about all of those things that, that you're trying to accomplish, those, those goals that are related to you moving through the world. We, I think one of the coolest things about the brain is that we don't have to constantly think about those things for them to still be online, right? We see the world through our values. We don't have to reflect on them in the moment, right? So there's something in our brain that's kind of keeping all of that online. And when you stop and you stop doing things and you just sit there, like this is common in, in mindfulness and meditation, all of these thoughts that just start to arise, right? You're not really creating those, right? Those are just coming from somewhere. And if you really pay attention to them, a lot of them have this like self flavor to them. 
they're related to all of these kind of goals that I was just talking about, about whether people recognize or appreciate me, about whether or not I, my finances are in store, about whether I'm putting enough work in to get the job that I want, right? Like we end up just kind of obsessing over and stressing over these things that our mind is kind of just trying to solve all of these self-related problems all the time. Yeah, and it's that's super interesting uh, thinking about the the medial front prefrontal cortex, because like, and you 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 have to correct me whenever I go off track here, but the <laughs> the more dorsal areas of the the uh, medial PFC are have a closer association with um, like social thinking about other people. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. and this is yep. also uh, the D, the dorsal medial PFC is also a uh, part of this default mode network. Um, and so like yep. that, it makes sense that we're not only thinking about ourselves, we're also thinking about these social things, the groups maybe that we're a part of or things just other people said, um, but always like Taylor said, kind of relating it back to ourselves, which really does, I think just makes sense from like an organism perspective, you know, it doesn't really, um, help you. It's not really adaptive to just think about random other people in the world if it doesn't have some relationship back to you. Yeah. And uh, just to sort of mirror the point you were making about the VM, the ventral medial PFC uh, being involved in value, one of the, the yeah. um, most reliable findings from like decision neuroscience from uh, so-called neuroeconomics, when people make <laughs> decisions, value-based decisions. Like I like, you know, this thing over that thing. I like an apple more than an orange. Uh, they can, uh, to a large extent, predict which option you're going to choose based on the activity of the VMPFC. So that's just kind of backing up that point that it is involved in valuation and in, in determining what's, what's valuable to us. And it's this node in the default mode network. <laughs> you're hitting on something that honestly is one of my favorite things about doing this show. Uh, and that's the fact that if I was to just be doing the work that I do in social neuroscience and just kind of in, ingrained in the social neuroscience literature, all they talk about is that region being the self region. But we've done all of these episodes on the show kind of stepping outside of that realm and looking at like decision neuroscience, looking at neuroeconomics, looking at, at memory and integration and all of these things. And as soon as you step out of one field and into the other, that same region pops up, but in these different flavors, right? Now it's involved in value-based decision-making. Uh, and then in other aspects, it's involved in like integrating information. Uh, but when you kind of look across all these domains, there's this common thread through all of them that if I'm making a value-based decision, if I'm choosing to integrate new information into something, it's because it's important to my goals, right? It's important to who I am. It's important to my preferences because of things that I've liked in the past or things that I didn't like in the past, right? Like all of that stuff is wrapped up in this region. And I think one of the coolest findings in kind of uh, translational neuroscience, which is like what we find here mapping onto the real world, is that when you take experienced meditators that have been meditating for like 10,000 hours and you put them into a scanner and they explain having this feeling of selflessness, of losing the self. And they also use the word equanimity of losing this, like this judging of things being good or things being bad. The same time they're reporting, feeling those things, that same region is losing activity in the brain. So 
it's like this this really incredible mapping from the actual neuroscience to to real people's experiences. Yeah, it's super cool. And just I know we don't want to stay on the VMPFC for too long, but it's such a cool <laughs> region. One of the other things that it's uh, known to be involved in is emotion regulation, especially it has this really strong connection to the amygdala, kind of a unique connection where it's able to downregulate the activity of the amygdala in a way that no other, well, I won't say that, but it, it has a uniquely <laughs> strong uh, inhibitory connection yeah. to the amygdala that, um, you know, again, coming back to this idea of value, what's important to us. So when you're having this anxiety or this fear about something and you're able to, okay, don't want to, can't focus on that right now. I'm going to let that go, take a deep breath, move forward because, you know, this other thing is more important or what, however it is that you approach that emotion regulation, um, you know, it, it makes sense that it's the VMPFC that has this special relationship with the amygdala uh, to sort of calm down that that anxious state or that maybe threat-related processing. But like I said, we don't want to stay too long <laughs> on the VMPFC because I feel like we should mention that there's some other uh, regions here as well that that matter, like the the because it's not just the it's not just the medial frontal <laughs> cortex, right? It's there's also uh, the, the posterior cingulate cortex is another one of these, the the PCC, which um, yep. I was looking for a brain model to pick up and, and show, <laughs> but uh, basically it's another one of these sort of midline. There we go. Yeah, here Taylor's <laughs> pointing to it, but it's one of these midline structures, meaning it's close to kind of the the midline of the brain under the uh, neocortex. And it's kind of closer to the back. That's it. so posterior cingulate cortex. Yep. And this region, among other things, is involved in uh, episodic memory or memory retrieval, right? I, yeah. Um, so again, making sense of what the sort of cognitions that we experience when the default mode network is active, uh, making sense of that with this neuroanatomy a little bit. And I want to I want to use that to kind of paint a picture real quick, right? Because I they've often split the default mode into like two sections. Uh, mm -hmm. There's kind of the self-reflective section, but then there's also like incorporating the past and memories and using those to kind of think about the future. All right, I the default mode really is something that takes us out of the present moment. It's something that that allows us to to kind of reflect on the past, to kind of use the past to construct the future, or to think about the future, about who we are and what we value, and all of these kind of things. It's it's a very disconnected from uh, the sensory world type network, uh, and it's that's evident in like the neuroscience too that you see kind of downregulation of actual sensory stuff when the default mode is on, and so coming back to what I was mentioning earlier about this building process of perception, right? We're talking about these as being high order regions of the brain, high order networks in the brain. And that means that these networks can turn on all of that information in the absence of anything in the external world, right? I can, I can just visualize these things. I can be in my own head. I can kind of think about my own experience. I can think about the future. I can think about these experiences in the past. And that makes it this, this very unique type of cognition that's very different than being engaged in the external world and doing something active, right? Which we'll get into here in a, in a little bit. But it's really interesting when you look at time in the brain and you look at how the sensory regions are operating really quickly. They are seeing things in the world, they're processing those things in the world, but then 
like I said, they're going through this like building process. And as you move up that hierarchy, you start to see that the higher you get, the more lengthy those regions can think about in time. They can think about longer and longer regions of time. And the default mode is kind of at the top of that hierarchy. It's allowing us to really integrate all of this information from our past, from, from things that are happening in our body, from our emotions, our preferences, our values, all of that kind of stuff into this kind of coherent narrative uh, that ends up turning into something that sounds like internal chatter, that sounds like a narrative. And something that kind of gets back to what, what Andrew was just highlighting about this, these other regions kind of in the back of the brain in the default mode is that they tend to be involved in bringing this past experience into the situation. And now it's not just about self-reflecting on things that are happening right now, but now I'm able to bring this other stuff. And they've actually shown that a lot of depression is actually a really tight functional coupling between those parts in the back and the parts in the front that you're constantly thinking about all of these things that happened in the past over and over and over again. And it becomes this, this loop that you almost get stuck in because when you really think about it, and I know this is kind of long-winded, but like when you really think no, about it, a lot of these goals that we have about being accepted, about belonging, about accomplishing the things that we want in our lives, a lot of them are not fulfilled yet, right? And we end up in these cycles where our body's trying or our brain is trying to find equilibrium on these things. It's trying to close the loop. It's trying to find out how I can feel accepted, how I can feel recognized, how I can feel like, like I'm doing what I need to do, that I'm competent, that I can be out there in the world. And I think that that's really what ends up creating a lot of this rumination is that this system is trying to find some kind of a narrative to make sense of the fact that our goals are not accomplished. Ah, that's so great. I love that, that idea of the, the, the tight coupling between the kind of like more posterior and anterior regions of the default mode being involved in, um, depression, because there's, there's also this, um, general idea about depression. Um, this model that was proposed by Rebecca Price and Ronald Duman about, um, how depression works, a couple of neuroscientists who said that, if you look at depression in many ways, it has this uh, cognitive rigidity associated with it. And, uh, and often a, um, often a, a decrease in the activity of the lateral frontal parietal network, or at least the kind of frontal parietal control networks that we'll talk about in a minute that have more of a role in active engagement with tasks and with the world. And so like putting that together with what you just said, really interesting to think about kind of being rigidly locked into this default mode rumination. And that is, yeah, a finding about depression that there is often, not always because depression is a umbrella term, but often a um, hyperactivity of the default mode. And, um, yeah. and we're going to, again, we talked about at the beginning, how we're going to get into maybe some practical advice or some practical thoughts about what thinking about the brain in terms of these large scale networks, really what the payoff is for, for your life. And I think um, we're just, we're kind of touching on one right now, but before we get dragged down that path, uh, maybe we should kind of jump into some of these other networks because we were talking earlier about the discovery, right? The discovery of the DMN, the default yeah. mode network was, people in the scanner 
not really doing anything. And then they realize, oh, there's actually this really, um, you know, reliable pattern of activity that arises when people are just laying there between tasks. But they also found that kind of uh, somewhat independent of the kind of task they're doing, the, as long as it's a cognitively demanding task, there is a, a reliable pattern of brain activity, a network who, that comes online when people are engaged in cognitive tasks. And now we'll get into the nuances of this because there are, <laughs> um, there's not just one network, there's multiple that are involved yeah. in this, this kind of cognition, of course. But um, yeah, so, so maybe we could talk a little bit about what those networks are and, and uh, yeah, what they're doing. And these, I think, have been a little bit harder to 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 kind of narrow down because of the fact that, uh, like you were saying, there's a lot of different types of cognitive tasks that all kind of activate regions within these networks. And so, doing the kind of traditional neuroscience that we were doing was hard to really capture like the full network structure of these things. Uh, and what really has kind of helped pave the way for kind of understanding the network structure of the brain is actually a different type of, of fMRI research called resting state research. Fascinating story too about kind of how we discovered this. Uh, There's a guy named Bharat Biswal back in the 1990s. He was a like second year graduate student at the time. And I think his paper as a second year graduate student has like 10,000 citations now or something. Uh, it kicked off an entire field of research. And what he was doing was, was actually pretty simple. He was putting people in the scanner and he was having them tap their finger while they were in the scanner. And when you tap your finger, you get this really reliable activity in the motor cortex that's responsible for movement of that finger, right? But he also had this whole rest condition. And what he found during the rest condition was that when people were resting, not doing anything at all, just sitting in the scanner, the brain kind of goes through these fluctuations. And we mentioned that the default mode network comes online, but if you watch these videos of the brain going through these fluctuations during a resting state kind of, kind of thing of just sitting there resting, you see that there's this oscillatory activity where like you'll see like this network comes on and then this network comes on and then this network comes on. And essentially what they did was what this guy found was that when these people were resting, those same regions that came online when someone was tapping their finger were coming on together when they were resting. And it was this idea that they're functionally coupled to one another. And so if you kind of put someone in a scanner, you tell them to do nothing, what you can do is you can look at all of the brain regions that are kind of coming up and down together. So even if they're really far apart from one another, if the activity in them goes up together and then goes down together and then goes up together and then down together, there's this idea that they're coupled, that they're connected in some way and talking to one another. And what really gave them a lot of confidence in like this technique was the fact that the default mode network popped right out, right? And we already knew about the default mode network. And now we had this new way of looking at networks. And so now with this new kind of resting state kind of idea, we can now see that there are these other networks that come online uh, that when we have people do stuff are the same ones that are active when they're engaged in external tasks. And because of this new kind of way of doing things, we're able to map out the entire structure of that network. There's still a lot of kind of controversy around like what the boundaries of these things are, uh, but we'll maybe kind of jump into a couple of these because uh, they're really cool. And the whole title of the episode was default mode versus action mode. Uh, action mode is actually like a new term for this network that just came out within the last like month. <laughs> but 
Yeah, but it's a useful like distinction because we talk about and I guess this is probably important to mention though, like when we're talking about when we use these functional names like default mode network or action mode network, or we'll we'll mention the salience network. Um these are like simplifications, they're shorthands because we know that the default mode is not only active when you're in your whatever a default state would be. And the action <laughs> mode is, you know, maybe not only active when you're performing an action or a salience <laughs> network is not only active when there's something salient. There's so there's nuances here, but these are like really useful shorthands, especially for a podcast like this. But yeah. in general, we have these these uh what is sometimes referred to collectively as these this frontoparietal control system. And like I was mentioning, that is kind of what comes online when we're engaged in these cognitive tasks. But what, and what Taylor's talking about is one kind of branch of this control system called the action mode network, or what was some often called the uh, singular opercular network. And this one is involved mostly in our kind of like focused, uh, or I don't want to say focus because that gets into attention, but our um, engagement in specific singular tasks. Do you think that, is that fair, a good way to characterize it? Yeah, no, and I think I think a, a good place to, to really frame this, uh, we just had these episodes on like stress and these different axes between like being really restful versus being like super alert, right? And I think that really maps on to what this picture that we're about to paint in that the default mode, we just kind of painted this picture of it being a very restful state, right? When I'm not doing anything, my brain is able to leave the present moment and it's able to go into the past, it's able to go into the future, all of these kind of things, right? Uh, and that's kind of when my body is in this kind of restorative rest, kind of uh, recuperate kind of mode. But if we need to engage with the world, we need to be alert, right? And if we have something specific that we need to do, we need to have sustained attention on that thing. So we have some specific goal. So let's say that we're just like sitting here, just like daydreaming. We should be working, but we're not. Uh, and all of a sudden the fire alarm goes off. You experience an incredibly drastic change in your brain state, in your entire physiological state. You go from being very just kind of like, I'm not really here to incredibly alert and ready for action. And in that case, when the fire alarm goes off, you have a very specific goal in that situation to get out of the building. And what this action mode network is really responsible for is maintaining a task set. And what that means is that it's making sure that you stay on task with that goal that you're supposed to be doing right now. And so that that is kind of the, the readiness. It's, it's what's getting the body. It's what gets the sympathetic tone in the body up. And so we talked in our stress episode about the sympathetic nervous system. So it's getting the body ready for action. It's involved in these like uh, pre-motor areas. So like planning to move, not necessarily moving, because those are other networks, but getting the body ready to move. Um, and then that kind of feeds into some of these other networks that Andrew was just talking about that are really important for then thinking through everything that's happening, right? So this action mode is like, okay, I'm turning the default mode off. And this is like the most anti-correlated with the default mode. So if the default mode is on, this one is, is off. And if this one is on, the default mode is, is turning off, right? 
Uh, and then once it's on, now I can engage these executive control networks to, to think through the entire goal, right? Like, okay, I have to open that door. I have to run down the hall. I have to do all of these things. Now I'm engaging these, these other ones, right? I think it's really important to, to highlight the fact that we're using kind of an intense example to really paint the picture of the, the kind of juxtaposition of these two things, to, to show that these two things are kind of at odds with one another. They're kind of in competition with one another. Uh, but you really have to think and try to relate this to like, how can I incorporate this into my life? Because I'm not just hearing the fire alarm all the time, right? I, I am getting myself out of daydreaming out of rumination, out of all of these things, by just getting my body ready to do something, right? By getting it to engage in some type of external task. So the fire alarm paints this nice picture of, of how we transition from this state to that state, but you need to be able to kind of incorporate this idea into practical situations in your life where you may not have a loud blaring alarm in your in your office that that causes that change and it may have to be something that that's more internal that that kind of comes from you deciding that there's something important that that requires this shift right yeah yeah um well okay here's here's a real life example right I, we were you guys won't see this but we were literally just talking and my camera battery died <laughs> and taylor's talking and uh, i'm focused on exactly what he's saying listening and then all of a sudden i see a notification that pulls my attention <laughs> over there oh your camera battery died uh oh okay now we gotta pause this recording so i can change out my camera and so i'm shifting between these tasks so like one way to think about this is i i probably i was not in like a default mode network I, I was more in this action mode network, but it's still uh, an example of sh shifting. And maybe this gets us into another uh, another one of these uh, control networks, this fronto lateral frontoparietal network, uh, because I, I just did this whole episode on cognitive flexibility. And cognitive flexibility is basically the updating of task sets, the idea that we are we're switching between something we're thinking about or doing Right. Even though we're, we're not going from default mode, we're not going from like daydreaming into focused attention right away. We're going from yeah. one uh, task requiring focused attention to another. Right. And so that is seems to be a function of this lateral frontoparietal network, especially a region called the inferior frontal junction. And so like as an, a real life example of maybe something that, that happens is, you know, you get a notification on your computer that. Uh, takes you away from something that you're you're very focused on to another task that you're focused on, switching your your action mode network from one task to another. Um, but anyway, yeah. So so if that's like the most graceful I can be with that mistake, and try to incorporate it into this episode. <laughs> something that that I want to kind of incorporate too, though, is that. The salience network, so the thing that's like noticing that there's an alarm bell going on or whatever, uh, that doesn't just notice things that are happening in the external world. It also notices things that are kind of important to the self. And so it can switch us from default mode into action mode, but it can also switch us back into default mode if it notices that there's something that requires reflection. Right. If like we have some kind of emotion welling up, it's going to say like, hey, this is probably important to, to pay attention to. We should reflect on this. We should maybe think about our past, about the times that we felt like this before. Right. And so, 
you have to think that there's this this dynamic kind of interplay going on where you have these two you have default mode and you have action mode that are in competition with one another and then there are these kind of regions in between that are deciding which way we should go in any given moment and i think something that really helps kind of paint this picture is to to really kind of try to understand how attention works uh because what we're describing with like action mode and with these executive networks and things like that is, is really about kind of sustained focused attention. It's turning on these dorsal attention regions that show our eyes like where to look and what to pay attention to. We're working towards accomplishing some kind of a goal or whatever it is. That type of attention is, is usually referred to as endogenous attention. That's, that's us taking control of the spotlight of attention and saying like, I have this thing that I want to do and so I'm going to do it. And so the other side of that, the exogenous attention is the type of attention that pulls us, right? The, the fire alarm that, that distracts us, right? Uh, there's this great picture of like uh, this dad, like protecting his son from a ball, like flying at his head at a baseball game, right? It was something that like, he didn't think about that. It was just totally reflective, right? But what I want to kind of paint is that the exogenous attention system, the thing that is, is kind of tuned to these distractors in our world is something that I think we have the ability to calibrate because we are able to decide for ourselves what kind of things we care about, right? And that's done through these self-reflective processes in the default mode of really thinking about who we are, what's important to us, what our preferences are, all those kind of things, right? And so if you're someone that's really driven by, by recognition and by wanting to belong, you might have a much stronger pull when you get a notification on your phone because you've decided that those kind of things are really important to you. And now all of a sudden you're in social land and you're thinking about all of these things, right? And so this is kind of a practical thing that I'm, I'm trying to get at with trying to understand this switching that happens between the two, I think very much depends on the things that we've decided for ourselves are important things for the salience network to, to look out for. That's so, that's such a good, it's a good way to transition in like, because <clears throat> yeah, I think we do have an ability to shift between these networks. Like, uh, you know, let's, we'll leave the free will debate aside. We covered that in a whole episode. We've talked about that <laughs> ad nauseum, but, uh, just, you know, in day-to-day -day terms, like we do have the ability to willfully shift the activity of these networks in at least to some extent. Right. And uh, we were talking earlier about how meditators have this different pattern of uh, default mode activity uh, compared to, you know, just regular people or novice meditators. And um, another kind of example of this that I've, I've mentioned before is we do like one of the findings with meditation, when you look at um, this stuff we're talking about, this network neuroscience is you see a, not only a reduction in the activity of the default mode network, but a lower functional connectivity, a kind of reduced connection to this salience network. So there's like this ability to experience feelings, to experience emotions, to experience the kind of maybe just the, the bodily sensations, depending on you know, what sort of meditation you're doing without bringing in this wandering mind, this storytelling mind into it. And so you're, you're reducing that activity of the default mode. 
and sort of disconnecting it from the salience network and then also engaging these these uh frontoparietal or these um these uh control networks these executive control networks to keep you focused on the breath or on just the present moment or whatever it may be and so there are these really interesting ways of training our attention as taylor's saying to shift the kind of flow of information through our brains and to become more resilient to distractors right to understand like i there's there's this philosopher that that i i love uh named husserl he was kind of a he was like the the wacky guy in his like time of philosophy and he was one of the first philosophers to really start paying attention to his internal experience i don't know if he's one of the first but anyway i uh, he described this process of putting reflector tape on things in his mind and it's this really cool thing that I've, I've thought so much about as i've like tried to understand the mind and think about my own brain and things like that that what we're trying to do with all of this stuff is to give you insight into what might be going on in your brain. And now you have the, the kind of option to notice those things. And when you do notice them, put some reflector tape on it. Notice like, okay, I just got distracted by something. Boom. What was that? Right? Why did I get distracted by that thing? What are my values around that thing that make me feel so kind of powerfully pulled towards it? away from what maybe I want to be doing right now, or maybe what I kind of need to be doing right now, right? And the more that you're able to kind of gain insight into what these distractors are that are kind of flipping this switch between being active and being daydreaming or whatever it may be, the more control you can kind of start to get over them. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about what, what not only like, what are the, the values that drew you to that distractor, but also how to what are the values that can kind of uh, shift you away from that toward the thing that you actually want to do? Remembering those, bringing those to the forefront of your mind so that they're, they're front and center. And then, okay, yeah, that is really what's valuable. That's the most valuable thing. Let's engage these control networks, this action mode network to engage in this because this is actually more important to me than this distractor. This is this is an interesting framing, right? Last time that we covered this, uh, we were going into an episode about mindfulness, about meditation, and when you look across across the internet, across like all of the the fancy stuff that's coming out about the default mode network, a lot of the solutions that people propose are just to do meditation, right? And that is a really good way of reducing the activity in this network. It's a really good way of getting kind of a, a handle on sustained focused attention, on, on really kind of managing the switch between these so that there's not this constant chaotic switch happening between them. Uh, but there are some other things that I've thought a lot about since our, our last episode uh, that really kind of are more about what's happening when we're in these states and not necessarily how to switch out of them, right? Because if the default mode network is this kind of narrative network, if it's something that's that's kind of telling us a story about, about what our goals are, about whether we're on track and all of these kind of things, then we, we can be mindful of what the story is. And we can be mindful of kind of what's what's populating that story and, and try to, to kind of come up with some creative ways of, of trying to spend some some important kind of self-reflective time understanding kind of maybe where some of these these ruminative thoughts right and when we say rumination we're usually talking about 
constantly dwelling on negative things about times that I've failed, about things that I'm maybe not going to be able to accomplish, all of those kind of things. And you look at like certain kind of uh, therapeutic techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that, that that are are challenging the, those things, are challenging whether or not those are based in reality, right? Uh, and a lot of the times, a lot of these these ruminations that we have about us not like feeling competent and feeling like we're going to actually accomplish something, I think a lot of that is tied to our kind of view of the future. Um, a lot of people with, with depression have a really hard time thinking about the future, engaging with the future, right? And so a lot of this, like we said, a lot of the, the connections are with the past, with all these times that we failed. And I think so much about this kind of interplay that's constantly happening in our brain where we as individuals have to go out in the world. We have to explore, we have to accomplish goals, we have to do things. But there's another system in our brain that's kind of in op opposition to that, that is actually measuring whether or not we're capable of doing those things, whether we have the competence to do those things. And that's very tied to all of the stuff that's happening in the default mode, right? It's bringing up all of these instances that I've failed before. It's telling me I shouldn't spend my resources going out and trying to accomplish things because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna succeed, right? And really what I think helps in a lot of these situations is reframing the kind of uh, what what Andrew talked about in our last episode, the like deadly peas, the pervasiveness, the personalness, the uh, the pat, like, I can't remember what the third Permanence. one was off the top of my head. Permanence, thank you. Uh, is that we often feel like these things that we're not accomplishing are a lot bigger than they are. And if you can go through a like an active self-reflective process of of saying like, okay, what are all these things that I'm worried about? What are all these things that I think I'm going to fail at? And what are some ways that I can start reframing them to start breaking them down into smaller pieces, to start convincing myself that I can accomplish things and actually spending some time like in that moment. Like, so let's say you do a small task and you do succeed. Don't just move on. Spend some time actually like basking in the fact that you just achieved something. Convince your brain that you're you're able to accomplish that thing. And I think the more that you do that, the more you can start to build some different kind of internal chatter. That's such a good point because yeah, we we mentioned at the beginning that the default mode is not bad, right? It's it's a it's important for 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 optimal cognition, whatever that may be, but. Uh, again, like coming back to this narrative, this storytelling about ourselves, that's not bad, right? What's bad is telling really negative, unrealistic, you know, hypercritical stories about ourselves, being that inner critic of ourselves. It's not terrible to have an inner critic, right? But it's when that's the only voice you're listening to in your mind, that's extraordinarily disempowering, right? And a lot of the, now that we're talking about a lot of the techniques from like positive psychology, come down to sort of rewriting often literally on a piece of paper, the story that you're telling yourself. And one of these I'm thinking about is just really simple. You hear about it all the time, gratitude journaling, right? Just taking a few minutes a day to write down five things that you're grateful for people, events in your life, uh, situations, whatever it may be, just reflecting on those, how they make you feel, why you're grateful for them. Sort of starting to change that uh, view of yourself in the present and in the past and like the story leading up to now. But again, like thinking about the future too, I was just looking at this really interesting study that was published in 2020 in the journal of positive psychology. And it was, they 
again, this is just one study, but they, they did this exercise where they had people, um, every few days, basically they would have them write down something in the far future. So like a year, five years, 10 years, maybe down the line that they're looking forward to, or that they hope will happen and reflecting on how that makes them feel and describing it, kind of getting into that, thinking about it really like being in that situation. And as odd as it sounds, that sort of future gratitude almost, or just like this exercise in sort of hope and, and uh, rewriting that story of what's coming, what what's the future going to be like, it had a, a pretty uh, strong effect on reducing symptoms of depression and uh, a mild, modest effect on increasing um, feelings or uh, optimism, th thriving. And I think uh, there was there was another one. Oh, emotional resilience, something like that to adversity. So there was these effects of, okay, when you start telling yourself a more positive story and start just considering the positive things in your life now and what may come in the future, you start rewriting that story that the default mode is constantly telling. And it stops being this constant inner critic and starts becoming, you know, an inner uh, hype man or something like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, just that's another way of thinking yeah. about this, that we're not just saying turn down the default mode, we're saying like you can also rewrite the stories the default mode is telling. This, uh, I mean, what you're saying resonates with other stuff I've seen in addiction. You get people to, to think about the future and they've shown dysregulation of the frontal cortex in, in people that suffer from addiction and just getting them to just think about the future, not taking a drug, not doing any kind of intervention, just like, just think about the future. I was, had some pretty significant decreases in impulsive behavior and, and other kind of stuff like that. I, and what I think is, is really powerful here is that what we mentioned earlier about the, the VMPFC, this region that is like considered like the self region by a lot of people. It's about the region that we value things that we integrate information in and all of these kind of stuff, things. What I think is probably going on is that we have a model in that region of ourself. We have this, the schema that is all of the things that, that we are, that, that we want to accomplish, right? If I ask you the question, who are you? You're going to come back to me with a list of descriptors that usually involve personal stuff about you, about what you want to accomplish, about things that you like and things that you don't like. It's also going to include your connections to other people, right? Uh, like if I already answered that question, I talk about being a father, about being a husband, about being a scientist, right? It's about how I belong to these other groups. And this, this model that we have of ourselves is malleable. It's in one of the regions that is the most plastic in the brain. That's why it's one of the regions that's the most hard hit by Alzheimer's. And it, so it's something that we can accommodate with new information. And when I say that, what I mean is that we can modify our self-concept. We can modify the schema that is who we are and what we want to accomplish and what we believe about ourselves and, and what we value and what we like and what we don't like, right? And if we can spend valuable time actually thinking about our values, thinking about who we are, that will start to train these other systems on what to pay attention to. If your model of yourself is constantly being fed with, I'm a failure, with, I'm never going to amount to anything, 
then you're training your attention systems to look for proof of that information in the world. And you're going to find it. You're going to see it. You're going to constantly, your salience network is now saying, oh, look, there's another, there's another instance of me being a failure, right? But if you can start to develop a different schema, if you can start to develop a, a new way of thinking about yourself as someone that is capable of accomplishing things, that, that can do the things that you seek to do, then your brain is going to start looking for proof that you can do that. But it takes an active kind of <laughs> involvement to get that process started. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's this reciprocal relationship between everything we're talking about with all these different networks, because part of showing yourself that you are an effective, um, you know, person who can do thing important things in the world is doing those important doing things in the world that matter to you. And yeah. so like, engaging these, this action mode network and uh, going and actually accomplishing those things. And then reflecting on that. So like you're, yeah. you're in that action mode, you're doing the thing, you've done it, you've accomplished it. Now, like Taylor's saying, okay, let's sit back. Let's be in the, you know, the default mode. Uh, and <laughs> let's reflect on that. Let's look at what we've actually done and alter this model of ourselves to fit the reality of who we are and what we do in the world. And I think often that is the thing that you know, I, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a therapist or anything, but, you know, in my experience, depression uh, or, you know, depressive symptoms often for me arise from having a incorrect, and I really mean that, like an irrational view of myself in the world and seeing like myself as a failure, as a loser, or as, you know, just some sad piece of crap. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then again, like you said, looking for evidence for that training my brain to see that in, in my behavior. And then guess what? I start acting like that person. I start doing less stuff. I stop achieving my goals and going towards that and setting ambitious goals. And so it's this reciprocal relationship. And I think the cool thing about that is that you don't have to start at any one part, right? You, what you Neat. What you can do is if you're feeling really burnt out or you're feeling really, uh, you know, maybe experiencing a little bit of depression, again, not a clinician, but just as a person to person, I would say like, go do stuff, go try to achieve some small goal and then reflect on that. Get this cycle of positivity and motivation and progress started and see that go forward and rewrite these stories. That's, that's a key part of it as well. But Anyway, sorry, I kind of went off there no, on no, a tangent. I, <laughs> no, I, I like it. I, I think it's important that we we also kind of discuss things from maybe a trauma-informed perspective as well, because I, I do want to recognize that a lot of the stuff that we're talking about can feel really scary to people that don't feel safe in their own bodies. Right, that have been through some traumatic experiences that that are maybe kind of afraid of the voices in their head and of, of combating these voices in their head. And that's why I think that we're really highlighting the, the small steps, right? Someone that's suffering from a major bout of depression is going to be experiencing a lot of psychomotor retardation, which means that they're going to have a really hard time just doing anything, convincing their body to even move, to get out of bed, to do whatever. And it's it's what I was mentioning earlier in terms of small steps, like actually just bask in how successful you've been just putting your feet off the edge of the bed, 
right? Putting on your shoes, getting up and, and making yourself breakfast, whatever it might be, like that was an accomplishment. And it's it's this reframing that we're talking about in terms of the more you engage in something, the more it starts to become habitual, the more it starts to become kind of automatized in our brain. And something that, that I'm going to kind of highlight here that I talked a lot about in our, our episode on neuroplasticity, if you want to go back and watch it, is that this stuff is not easy. And I think what a lot of people get into is that they start trying to do some of these things of trying to engage in more positive thought or trying to engage in gratitude journals. I can relate to a lot of this that it's, it takes a lot of effort and you might see some positive benefits, but it also takes time and it takes time out of your day and away from other people and all of these kind of things. Something that I have found really helpful with all of this stuff is that I tend to, when I get into these, these routines of doing self-care things, I start to think like, you know what, it's not fixing me. It's not fixing all of the things that are wrong with me. It's not making my anxiety go away. It's not making my depression go away. It's not, it's not making my back pain go away, whatever it is. And I end up just throwing everything out. And I just go into just no self-care mode. And I just don't do anything to help myself. And what I have found that has been helpful, especially recently, is that I start to really put a lot of weight on that feeling after I engage in one of those those things, whatever it might be, right? I do some of my my exercises, some of my like gentle martial art thing that I do, and it takes time, it takes effort. But as soon as I'm done with that thing, I say, you know what? My back feels really good right now. I feel really calm. I feel like my stress responses have gone down a lot. Maybe I'm gonna write that down and say, you know what? I just did something and it really helped, right? And the thing about neuroplasticity is that the more you create that new path, the more work you put in on it, the easier that path becomes to walk. That's so, so important. So important to talk about the really small things. It reminds me of, um, I think, oh, I'm going to butcher his name, but Dan <laughs> Tomasello, something like that. It's hard yeah. to pronounce, but he wrote the book, Learned Hopefulness. And uh, he is a, a therapist and he was talking about one of his patients who she was in a really severe bout of depression, could not get up, didn't want to, you know, even get up and shower or do anything at all. And he worked with her for so long, trying to get down to what, what's going on, you know, what are the, the thoughts and the emotions and all these things. And just nothing seemed to be working. And eventually at some point, I can't remember the details, but he says something like, I convinced her to just do, do one dish in the kitchen because she had been just using paper plates and, and like not even doing her dishes because there's this massive pile of dishes in the kitchen. And she just was so depressed. It was like, what, what's the point of doing any of that? It doesn't even matter. I'll just use these paper plates, throw them out afterwards. And, um, and he's like, okay, you don't have to do the whole, uh, sink full of dishes or anything like that. Do one dish, a single dish, wash it, dry it, put it away. That's it for today. And as, as small as that sounds, and I think people can, can really like minimize these little wins so easily in their own mind. And it's, it really was the first step for this woman in coming out of depression because it was like, oh, I can do something. I can do this little thing. I am an effect. I am effective. I'm not this this person I've been telling myself I am. 
and it's a slow process. And I don't want anybody to, to ever feel like your small wins aren't worthwhile. Like celebrate your small wins, be congratulate yourself. And a lot of what Taylor's talking about, focusing on that feeling of what it, it really feels like to have that small little accomplishment or that good piece of self-care, that thing you did for yourself. So much of this gratitude journaling and the thing I was talking about, the kind of catalyst for it to really work is focusing on those feelings. It's not just writing the stuff yeah. down. It's you got to feel it. You got to really get yourself into yeah. that and feel that because otherwise it's, you're just going through the motion. So yeah, I just to echo the point you're making. <laughs> Incorporate it, make it who you are. I, I've always hated the idea of a diet. A diet is, I think, the stupidest thing in the world because it has this just like arbitrary end date of like, I'm going to lose this many pounds. Uh, what really changes someone's lifestyle, someone's behavior is adopting a new self-concept, is saying, you know what, I'm the kind of person that doesn't eat that kind of food, right? And, and convincing yourself. And convincing yourself, you know what? I really love salad, right? I've, I, I'm, I'm not speaking from experience, right? But it's, it's one of these things. It, it kind of paints the picture. There's someone that does work here at the, at the University of Oregon where I work that, that really gets into a lot of this stuff with bad, with not bad habit, but like with uh, unhealthy habits and the power of identity to shift someone from one thing to another. And, and that's really what we're trying to get at with a lot of this episode is that so much of the default mode network is about you. It's about what you care about. It's about what you want to accomplish. And what is the story that's being told to you? Because the default mode is creating thoughts, right? When we're taking control, when we're, we're taking control of the handle, we're actually like in these executive networks and we're saying, you know what, that's wrong. Let's turn that off and let's change it, right? Uh, so really think, listen to what your brain is telling you about who you are and see what you need to do to maybe accommodate that schema and change it so that you can you can calibrate these networks a little bit better. I love that. I think that's a, a good note to end on, a uh, positive idea. And uh, yeah, I guess we just wanna thank everybody for listening as always. It's awesome to have this audience, this growing audience of people. Um, and you might not know this, but we have exclusive episodes of the social brain <laughs> that only patreon supporters can access and you have to be signed up at a certain tier to get it so if you want to check that out go to the patreon.com slash the social brain and uh, you'll find all of our uh, tiers there and yeah we have kind of more um, casual episodes where we're just chatting we're just talking about this stuff but incorporating everything we've been learning about the brain and it's really fun. It's really cool. So definitely go check that out. It also supports us because we love doing this. This is like a labor of love, but it's something that we, you know, it, it takes resources, it takes time and everything. So um, as much as we just appreciate and love doing it intrinsically, we, we do need that support going <laughs> forward. So go check that out. Check out the exclusive episodes and uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. And we also got some really cool uh, merchandise. Uh, we create these awesome like brain images and put them on shirts and mugs and stuff. So, uh, yeah, check it out. It's and we're not trying to to to, to be money grubbing. Like we're, we're just trying to support the channel so that we can justify all of the time and effort that we put into doing this. So, uh, thank you so much for continuing to watch, and we will see you for the next one.